0: We need to assume we're going to be wrong and therefore start with the smallest piece that if we got that piece wrong, the entire idea would fail. And so if we start with that smallest piece that the whole rest of the idea hinges on and we get it right, then we can continue.
1: Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, Episode 90. Teresa Torres is a product discovery coach at Product Talk, She shared with Brian about product prototyping and what some common pitfalls are that corporate teams fall into when trying to develop and validate new and emerging technologies. Hi everyone, I'm Victory Clafter, producer of Inside Outside Innovation. New technologies, markets, and methodologies are changing the way people create value. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings together the best and brightest in the world of innovation, tackling these challenging problems.
2: I read a recent blog post that you posted about four powerful ways to use rapid prototyping to drive product success. And I thought it would be a great topic for our audience to hear a little bit about because it's something that we encounter every day when we work with corporate innovators. You know, a lot of them understand the concept of customer discovery and know they need to move faster and stuff. But when it gets down to the tactics of actually doing it, and specifically around like prototyping, uh, sometimes the wheels fall off. <laughs> so I wanted to, uh, to kick off uh, the story. How about you give the audience a little bit of background on who you are and how you've got uh, into the product development space?
0: I started my career uh, in the late 90s, kind of as the internet was taking off. And I did, like a lot of people at that time, I played multiple roles. So I think from the very beginning, I was doing a mix of front-end development, interaction design, product management. Uh, and probably, And over time, I, I really focused on both uh, the user experience side of things and product management, and had a pretty typical full-time employee career in both product management roles, user experience design roles. I led a couple product teams. Um, and about five or six years ago, I really decided that what I loved was investing in people and developing product teams, helping them work better together, helping them make better decisions about what to build next. So I set out and decided to work as a coach. Today, I work with teams around the world uh, that are looking to build better products.
2: Well, that brings us to a great topic then. So you've had a chance to kind of see over the years how teams have kind of evolved their product marketing and, and product development strategies in that. What are some of the kind of key things that you've seen over the last five or 10 years that have kind of really changed the dynamics of, of ways uh, teams can actually uh, get up to speed faster and, and prototype quicker?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. We've seen a lot of change, especially in the last five to 10 years. I think we've seen the rise in popularity of user experience coming with that in design thinking. We've seen companies really get serious about adopting agile seen the lean startup really in, infuse us with an experimental mindset. I think the biggest shift is teams are starting to realize that we probably don't have all of the answers and that while we while we do know a lot about technology and about what's possible with technology, we need to work with our customers to really understand how technology can meet their needs and that a big part of that is we need to co-create together rather than us being the smart experts in the room telling customers what they need.
2: So talk a little bit about this concept of co-creation. How, how can product teams kind of first understand their customers and then actually do something about it?
0: Yeah, so I think the biggest mistake I see teams make is they wait until they're done with whatever they're designing to get feedback from their customers. So I hear teams say all the time, I need two or three weeks to work through the design and then we'll start usability testing. The challenge with that, I call that a validation mindset. So we're trying to validate, do we get it right? I think the challenge with that is, we get feedback way too late in the process. So by the time we're usability testing, odds are whatever we're testing needs to go into our next sprint. And so if we learn that, or maybe two sprints out if we're lucky. So if we learn that it doesn't work quite right, or um, the customer gives us feedback that there's additional functionality we might need, but we need a slightly different workflow, We have time to make small tweaks, but we don't really have time to integrate the big, meaty feedback. And so we really miss out. Um, We have to wait till the next iteration. And we all know we never get to the next iteration because we have 400 things in our backlog. So uh, what I encourage teams to do is to actually engage with our customers from the very beginning, even when they're not ready. Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn had a quote where he said, "Uh, if you're not embarrassed by your first launch, you waited too long. And I think that same ethos applies to getting customer feedback. If you're waiting for your design to be polished before you get feedback, you've waited way too long. I love it when teams are on a whiteboard drawing out ideas with their customers because we can change whiteboard drawings really easily. And we can let our customers draw their own whiteboard drawings. So I think really that the, a co-creation mindset is, Let's infuse the entire process with our customer perspective and not just that last validation step.
2: Well, I think it's important, you know, corporate innovators tend to, it's different than maybe some of the startup teams that we work with, you know, from a startup perspective, you don't always have customers (laughs) that you can actually work with, you know, a corporate mindset. Typically they've got some customers uh, in their, in their back pocket that they can actually bring to the table and have those conversations. But what I find a lot of times is they're scared to do that because they have Kind of the existing brand, they have the you know the existing baggage of what that customer thinks, uh, and it's sometimes challenging to get them to take that leap of saying, okay, bring a, bring a customer in and let's get a little behind the scenes, dirty or or sloppy. That's not all polished or buttoned up. So how do you get around uh, kind of convincing a, a product team to open the veil a little bit and be vulnerable?
0: Yeah, so I hear that fear a lot, and in practice, I think it's unfounded. So I've worked with some pretty large name brands in regulated industries, which adds a whole another layer of sort of complexity around can we engage with our customers. Um, And we've always found a way to do this. I think there's a lot of strategies here. First of all, most human beings, including our customers, are excited to feel like they're part of something early on. So I think when we present it as, hey, this is a new idea, Uh, It's not polished. It's not a product that's on the shelf ready to be sold to you. Uh, Most people respond to that as if they're a VIP. And so it turns out to be a really positive uh, engagement with your customer. So I think part of it is just framing, how you frame it with them. I think the second thing is that our customers really want to be heard. And so often the way we engage with our customers is through formal customer support channels or through a scripted account management engagement. And I think when we really come to them with a co-creation mindset, and we genuinely want to know what they need, and we want to hear what their ideas are, um, I think they love it, just like all human beings love just being heard. And then finally, for companies that really are risk-averse to kind of just get over the hump to try something, one strategy a lot of companies do is they experiment under a different brand. And I, I think that's fine if it helps you get started, I think every team I've ever worked with that started under a different brand has learned pretty quickly it's safe to do all of the same work under their big name brand and that they're not actually doing any harm.
2: So are are there any uh, core pitfalls that you, you think uh, corporate innovators should avoid in this particular process?
0: Yeah, so um, other than this idea of waiting for the last second to kind of verify, did we get it right? Um, I think another big mistake I see teams make is especially with, rat- with prototyping in particular, is we tend to prototype the whole idea, right? So uh, mm-hmm. if we have a new feature idea, we prototype the whole feature from beginning to end, and we ask our customers, hey, what do you think? I think there's a couple of challenges with that. It takes a long time to prototype the whole idea. We overwhelm our customers with too much, and we get too much feedback in return. Whereas I think if, Uh, One of the benefits we get with this kind of continuous mindset, so looking at discovery, what can we learn week over week rather than what can we learn in a big project? What this continuous mindset gives us is maybe I can just look at one piece of this new functionality. What's a very specific question that I need to answer and how do I build a prototype that allows me to answer that specific question? And then what that does is it means your um, interaction with the customer doesn't need to be a full hour. Maybe it's only 10 minutes. Uh, You get really nuanced feedback on a very small piece of the product instead of a lot of surface level feedback on the whole product. So I think a, a big part of this is getting really specific with your prototype. What question am I trying to answer? Who are the best people to test with to answer that question? And what's the smallest piece of the product that I need to simulate? To get
2: that answer, yes, I, I hear that as well. And some of the things that I've heard from kind of a pushback on that is, you know, well, if we just do these small little iterations, it will take us longer and longer to, you know, get something out there that's real. Um, you know, obviously, that's unfounded a lot of times because if you do a small iterative piece, sometimes you find that you're going to be on the wrong track, <laughs> and uh, it's better to find that earlier rather than you know six months into a project and you're you've got to rejigger it or th- throw it away or whatever. Um, what, how do you get uh, kind of buy-in for the speed of the iterative pace that you need to, to make this work?
0: Yeah, I have a, actually a, a blog post on this exact topic that is going live tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> oddly enough. So I think we're still learning what it means to be iterative, right? So we can give lip service to iteration. We work in uh, biweekly sprints, or we're using Kanban, or we're starting with the MVP and then iterating to our version one. Uh, But the reality is we're not iterative. I think uh, Marty Kagan likes to refer to sprints as mini waterfall. We're missing this, really the fundamental concept of iterating, which is we need to assume we're going to be wrong and therefore start with the smallest piece that if we got that piece wrong, the entire idea would fail. And so if we start with that smallest piece that the whole rest of the idea hinges on and we get it right, then we can continue. But because we're assuming we're going to get it wrong, because more often than not we will, then we need to focus just on that small piece because it's going to take a lot of iterations to get even that first piece right. And so this pushback about inefficiency, it's only inefficient if you get your solution mostly right. And this is, the, this is sort of the nut to crack. It feels like we are mostly right. Every day of our jobs, we're going to feel like we're mostly right. That's just how our brains are wired, right? We're very confident in the solution we're going to build. We think it's right. But now that we live in an internet age where we can instrument our products and measure the impact they're having, even the best teams are finding that they are wrong more often than they are right. And so if that's the reality we live in, we have to adopt practices that assumes we're going to be wrong. And so that iteration of starting with a small piece and then eventually getting to the full product is only inefficient if we're 100% right from the beginning. And I have never once seen that happen. If there's places where we're going to get it wrong, this process is actually much more efficient.
2: Are are there recommendations for, you know, when you think about all the things that you've got to test or or try or build, are there ways to be more prescriptive as far as how they prioritize what particular features they test or try or, or do first?
0: Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, it's it's really the same as how do I find my MVP mm-hmm. for my minim, minimal viable product. And I think there's been volumes written on this because it's, it's a hard concept to teach. What I tell teams to do to get better at this concept is to make your first best guess, build that. If it didn't have the impact you expected, which means you have to instrument it and then you have to follow up and measure what actually happened, to then ask yourself how, if it didn't have the impact you expected, to then ask yourself how could we have learned that earlier in the process? And that reflection will help you start to see where are we getting that MVP wrong? Where are we missing that first iteration? And then over time you'll start to build that muscle and get better and better at identifying what's sort of the, where's the riskiest piece here? What, where do we have to start?
2: Talk a little bit about, you know, when we talk about rapid prototyping, a lot of times we instantly think about uh, kind of the digital world and and because obviously it's it's easier and faster to, to make those changes in that type of environment. But do the same principles and that apply when you're doing hardware or, or non-digital types of development?
0: Yeah, rapid prototyping actually originated in the world of hardware. Uh, so it's funny to me when I meet teams that think it only works for software. Rapid prototyping really began in hardware where we had the prototype to understand, can we build something within our, within our budget? Can we get costs down? Is it reliable enough? Is it uh, going to wear well over time? Right. So a lot of these questions, uh, we, we, we couldn't assume that it was all going to work out and we had to prototype to find the best solution. Uh, that, we're basically borrowing this method, method from hardware for software. And actually, I think the fact that it's so easy to prototype in software uh, does us a disservice in the sense that we skip over a lot of the critical prototyping steps. So Mm -hmm. the reason why we prototype the whole solution is because it's easy to prototype in software, where if it was actually harder to prototype in software, we'd have to get a lot better at asking those questions. So you're never gonna, someone is is building hardware, like let's say you're building a refrigerator, you're never gonna see someone jump in and say, let's prototype the entire refrigerator. That's just too expensive, it takes too much time. They have to stop and say, okay, Where's their risk in a refrigerator? Um, What, maybe it's we got to keep costs down. What are the most expensive components? Let's start prototyping there and see if we can get um, the cost for each individual component down. And so right from the get-go, because it's hard to prototype the whole thing, they're getting really smart about what's the most important pieces to prototype. And that's actually the muscle that I think software prototypers to get a lot better at.
2: Well, you you recently wrote a a post called, you know, Four Powerful Ways to Use Rapid Prototyping to Drive Product Success. Um, What are some of those kind of tips or or things that uh, are are something that that you kind of run into on a regular basis that our audience should know about?
0: Yeah, so I think the first one is, again, we prototype. In the software world, we tend to equate prototyping with usability testing. That is one use of a prototype. But I like to see teams prototyping um in the very like on day 1 of exploring solutions so i call that prototyping just think uh it's it's thinking with your hands or thinking by doing i think this is really important we're seeing this become a lot more popular as teams adopt kind of design studio methods where they're whiteboarding or sketching a lot of ideas and then quickly doing rounds of uh of presenting and critiquing mm-hmm. i think that's sort of infusing our design process with uh, with prototyping as thinking um, but I think the whole the whole process, all the way from generating ideas through your very first MVP, drawing and building with your hands something is just a different way of thinking that I think is dramatically underutilized.
2: On that particular front, are there particular tools that you'd recommend or that, that make that process easier?
0: Yeah, you know, my favorite tools are still uh, whiteboard and whiteboard marker or pen and paper um, for software. I, I really want to... Um, Stay as low fidelity as possible for as long as possible, uh, because it helps me integrate feedback. So one of the challenges with prototyping is, the more time we invest in an idea, the ten, we tend to get, the more committed we become to that idea. So that that's sort of related to our cognitive biases. There's a bias around that called the escalation of commitment. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows when we single track our ideas, we become fixated on them. We don't integrate feedback that we hear. We don't explore enough different ideas. And so I think that's one challenge that teams constantly have to battle is, are we considering enough ideas? Are we in a position to integrate the feedback that we're hearing? And so a really low-fidelity prototype, and the longer you stay in low-fidelity, the more likely you're going to consider lots of ideas, and you're going to integrate feedback. Beyond that, like when we, we, we do have, especially in the software world, dozens and dozens of prototyping tools I don't think it matters which one you use at all. I get asked this question all the time. I think if it works for you, I think if it works for your team, I think if you're I think if you learn it well enough to use it uh, rapidly, that's what matters most. And I've been personally I've been prototyping in OmniGraffle since it came out in early 2000s. It's a diagramming tool. It's probably the most rudimentary prototyping tool that we have, and I know that we have InVision and sketch and all these way better design tools. But I know it really well. And I'm really fast in it. And I don't have to think about my tool, I can think about prototyping.
2: I like that. I, I tend to prototype in, in keynote. I, <laughs> I do a lot of stuff in the presentation world. And, and uh, that's my way of thinking almost
0: Yeah, you know what? I teach a lot of product managers to prototype in PowerPoint and Keynote because they're tools that they already use.
2: So, um, I kind of cut you off on the the first topic to go into a little rabbit hole, but uh, are there anything else you want to talk about uh, with regard to uh, rapid prototyping?
0: Yeah, the other thing I was going to say is that prototypes can be used really effectively internally. So, I think teams often, like, miss this use case for prototyping. So, I like to have teams prototype to communicate so one areas where this has grown in popularity is a lot of teams are using prototypes to communicate requirements to software engineers. So instead of writing dozens and dozens of user stories or long requirements documents, they're saying, "Hey, here's a prototype. Build this." And mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think that's a phenomenal way to communicate requirements. But you can also prototype to get stakeholder buy-in, right? You can you you can Uh, If you need to get your CEO on board or an executive team on board or even a sales team on board, giving them something they can play with is going to have a much bigger impact than trying to describe a product. Um, And same with even like I work with teams that have to clear sort of security hurdles or compliance hurdles, same thing. Mm -hmm. Things sound way scarier in the abstract. If you can give them a simulation of the product that they can experience hands-on, much more likely you're gonna clear the turtles.
1: That wraps up another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Thanks for joining us. If you have comments, questions, or would like us to cover a specific topic, let us know at the I.O. Podcast on Twitter or at our website. Next.co. That's N-X-X-T dot C-O. Until next time, go out and innovate.